0: We love having kids with us here in our worship this morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 25. Before we come to our text, you might remember that a few weeks ago I shared that when I was a kid, I liked mysteries, TV shows, books, Games like the board game Clue. But not only did I like mysteries, but I also liked TV shows and books about court cases. This is way back, but and I'd only watched them on reruns. Okay. Perry Mason, I'm not that old that I watched them in. Matlock. Law and Order when it first came out. I mean after a while that just got, you know, old after what, 28 seasons? I don't know how many seasons. Books like To Kill a Mockingbird. Movies like A Few Good Men and the classic My Cousin Vinny. I love to see how lawyers would find the truth. How they would reveal the truth to exonerate their client who is falsely accused. And this morning we find Jesus being falsely accused. He's been through a deceitfully called trial before the Sanhedrin. Now he stands before the two most powerful leaders, judges, if you will, in that part of the world. He doesn't have a lawyer that will represent him or try to reveal the truth of his innocence. The facts speak for themselves. And these two powerful leaders, Pilate and Herod, both find Jesus not guilty. Case closed, right? wrong. Instead of setting Jesus, the guiltless one, free, the guilty is set free in his place. And Jesus is sentenced to death. Death by crucifixion. Let's read Luke 23 verses 1 through 25. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. But they were urgent saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean and we had learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. He sent him over to Herod who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word made flesh in Jesus Christ. As we come to your text today, Lord, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, to know this guiltless King before us and the ramifications of that for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So two weeks ago, Pastor Alex preached from the account of Jesus on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was in prayer before his heavenly father and asked his disciples to be in prayer with him. Jesus asked the father that the cup of God's wrath might be taken from him, but not his will, but the father's will be done. And he finds the disciples asleep instead of praying, and we were reminded that we are to stay awake, seeking the will of the father. Uh, And last week, had we had worship together, uh, God had other uh, ideas in mind by uh, sending the storm and uh, uh, the electricity being uh, out, we would have come to the betrayal of Judas in the garden as Jesus is arrested, the betrayal of Peter as he denies knowing Jesus three times, the betrayal of Jesus by the Jewish leaders of not recognizing God's promised one, the Messiah, in their midst. We will come back to that text later on, but to keep in our path to the resurrection next week, we'll continue on this morning. And so we continue in our text following that night of betrayal. This may seem like a strange text for Palm Sunday, which the church typically remembers the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as we've been singing about, as we've been reading about. The crowd shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Similar words that were proclaimed by the angels at Jesus' birth, proclaimed as he entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. The crowds waving palm branches, throwing them on the ground along with their cloaks, preparing the way for the king. But instead of that scene, we're in the courts of, quote, kings. There is one king at this time, Caesar. These are lesser kings with a life and death decision on the line. And yet, as we look at our text, there are some very interesting similarities to the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem and what his disciples thought was his coronation procession. In our text today, we see a crowd of accusers in verse 1. Then the whole company, thats the whole Sanhedrin and anyone else who is a part of that group, this crowd of people arose and brought him before Pilate. You have this crowd of accusers in our text today versus a crowd of disciples on that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We see in our text Jesus accused and mocked as king mocked by Herod and his soldiers versus being proclaimed as king on that triumphal entry. We hear shouts of almost a joyful crucify him versus shouts of joyful Hosanna, God save us. I point these out to help us see something that Luke wants us to see while one group wants to crown Jesus as king, another group in the same place with similar religious background want him dead. Jesus enters on Sunday, disciples excited that the king has come. And four days later, he's arrested, tried, and sentenced to death. How similar to our experience of Jesus! We rejoice and days later we deny his existence. We proclaim his his, king, and days later we question his authority. We believe he is our hope, and days later we believe he's powerless in our circumstances. We believe he's our source of life, and days later we believe he is the reason our life has not what we want it to be. What hope is there for people like us? People who are guilty of frivolity, of sin like this. We need a guiltless king. And the main point of our text is that Jesus is the guiltless king that we need. Luke goes to great lengths to show us that Jesus is the guiltless one, the guiltless king He's guiltless before Pilate. He's guiltless before Herod. He's guiltless before Israel and he's guiltless before God. Jesus is the guiltless king. Guiltless before Pilate, guiltless before Herod, guiltless before Israel, and guiltless before God. First, he's guiltless before Pilate. We see that in verses 1 through 5 and again in 13 through 25. Jesus is accused of kingship. He's his title is given as King Messiah. It had become a standard title of the Messiah, the what literally means the anointed one. It was used in popular parlance uh, as the king from David's line who would be associated with the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And this is the accusation laid before Pilate. And Pilate spends what seems to be a good bit of time examining and questioning Jesus. And through this examining and questioning, Pilate asks directly, "Are you the king of the Jews?" And Jesus answers him, "You have said so." And then Pilate, in verse four, comes back to the chief priests and the crowd with him with them. He says, "I find no guilt in this man." Pilate didn't come to this conclusion lightly. We might think, oh, well, Pilate's just, you know, he's like, yeah, yeah, this is just some kind of Jewish thing going on, and I'm just going to dismiss this. But Pilate doesn't come to this decision lightly. He would have wanted to make sure that no one was seeking the power that Caesar held. Right? It is his job to make sure that no one seeks to ascend to the throne of Caesar or even lower than that to any position of authority that would usurp the authority of Caesar. So Pilate doesn't come to this decision lightly. He takes his time and investigates because if he lets someone who is guilty of such treason go, he would be found guilty of treason himself and be put to death. So he finds Jesus not guilty. Again, when he returns from Herod, he says again, when they call out for him to be crucified, he says, what evil has he done? In verse 32, I found no guilt in him. Pilate has found him guiltless. When Pilate finds out that Jesus is a Galilean. He has an idea. Maybe if I send him to Herod and Herod finds him guiltless or guilty, that will take it off my hands and he can deal with it. And so he sends him to Herod, who was in in the city of Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And by telling us that he goes before Herod, Luke continues the theme of Jesus' innocence by providing a second authoritative witness to his blamelessness. Both Pilate and Herod both acquit Jesus. They find no guilt in him. Luke wants us to hear his gospel to know that the two highest ranking officials in Jesus' world considered him innocent. Luke could have also wanted us to see and hear the Old Testament requirement of, of two witnesses that we read in Deuteronomy and Numbers for those who are, go before a judge. He is guiltless before two authoritative witnesses, before Pilate and Herod. And he comes back to Pilate and he is not only guiltless before Pilate and before Herod, but he is in fact guiltless before Israel, even as the leaders of Israel proclaim his guilt. Jesus has predicted this will happen. Back just a few verses before in Luke 22, Jesus is reckoned among the criminals, you'll remember, even though he is innocent. He is suffering as a servant. Though the suffering is unjust and intense, his exaltation will follow. He's been handed over to the Gentiles, Luke 18, only to be handed back to the Jews. He is guiltless before Israel because the false external Israel, the perverted Judaism of his day, which rejects, rejects the Messiah. Has falsely accused him. They indeed are the ultimate criminal in this case. It is to be rejected, this perverted Judaism, in favor of the new, true Israel, which, though based on the faithful remnant of old Israel, is to be drawn from people of all nations. And that is what Luke is pointing us to, that this old nationalism of Judaism is becoming the new living people of God of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. And it will emerge out out of this new Israel that is being formed through Jesus. And this guiltlessness before Israel should give us pause today. Should give us pause and ask, what ways are we prone to a similar rejection of the new true Israel, drawn from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people? Yesterday we had our quarterly presbytery meeting, which is a group of other Presbyterian church in America, churches gathering together in this region And during our time of prayer, Luda Bates, who is the wife of Derek Bates, who was the RUF pastor at Pitt for many years and now is the uh, regional uh, coordinator, she is Ukrainian. And she got up and asked that we pray, yes, for Ukraine, but specifically for the Slavic Baptist Church. The Slavic Baptist Church is a denomination of Ukrainian and Russian speaking churches. She grew up in a Slavic Baptist church in St. Louis after her family immigrated from Ukraine. This is a denomination whose churches are primarily made up, as I said, of Ukrainian and Russian Christians. And her prayer request, holding back tears, was for the church of her youth not to be torn apart. Not to split over nationalistic or ethnic priority. Not to bow their knee to the government of this world, but in unison bow before the king of the kingdom they profess to be citizens of in Christ. Because what's happening in that church is people are taking sides according to their nationalistic and ethnic background. And seeing the other as the other and not as as brother and sister in Christ. And it seems pretty clear to us from the outside how unbiblical that is, how anti-Christian that is, and yet, like the Jewish leaders, like our brothers and sisters in the Slavic Baptist Church, we too can bow to our own nationalistic priorities instead of bowing our knee to King Jesus the expediency of political intervention by our political party, the priority of our cultural norms, the false hope in a nation that is a quote-unquote Christian nation. The list can go on and on. There are all kinds of ways that we can be just like the Jewish leaders. Please hear me when I say this. We can sacrifice Jesus For the sake of our personal, cultural, or national agenda. Do not miss that point, brothers and sisters. Jesus didn't fit nicely into their agenda, and he doesn't fit nicely into ours. And so we're left with a choice kill the king or submit to him. Those are our choices. Those of Israel's leadership chose to kill the king. Our call as those who have been drawn to Christ is to submit to the king. He was guiltless before Pilate. He was guiltless before Herod. Ultimately, he was guiltless before God. Jesus is shown, proven to be the guilt to be guiltless before man, right? He's been proven guiltless before Israel. They had no, no charges that should have been brought against him. He's guiltless before Pilate, guiltless before Herod. But Luke also is showing us that because he is guiltless before the authorities of this world, he is guiltless before the authority of the world. He's guiltless before God. And the Apostle Paul makes this explicit In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This sacrifice of Jesus at the altar of injustice is the ultimate expression of God's love. That the guiltless king... Dying for you and me is the ultimate expression of God's love. Amazingly, in the midst of incredible injustice, God can design a means of victory. Jesus' death means the possibility of life for another. No matter how severe the sin, release is possible through Jesus' death. Jesus is the substitute. He is the guiltless one for the guilty, the guiltless one for the sinner. And Luke shows this so explicitly in our text, right? Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the murderer is set free and Jesus dies in his place. Jesus' death and Barabbas' release makes a portrait of the exchange God engages in to save sinners like you and me from the penalty of our sinful ways. Each one of us is Barabbas, <laughs> awaiting what is justly our that we deserve. And those who come to this realization, we now experience forgiveness through the blood of Jesus, through his death in our place, the one sacrificed on our behalf. Jesus has purchased his church, his people, you and me, through his own blood. And what the Old Testament alluded to, the New Testament writers will explicitly say about Jesus, that Jesus died unjustly. The just one, the guiltless one died unjustly for the unjust to make us just. He was guiltless before Pilate, guiltless before Herod, guiltless before Israel, and guiltless before God. One last thing to leave us with this morning. In light of what we see in our world, in light of what we experience, I just prayed for our brothers and sisters at Covenant in Nashville. When we look around us, We might see things that scare us. Cultural changes, political manipulation, misapplied science, technological advances. All these things can scare us. All these things that we experience and see in our world and the list can go on and on. But we desperately need to know that someone is in control. And in our time, in particular the account which Luke gives us of the last hours of Jesus' earthly life brings the assurance that we need. Think about it. As diabolical as the things that we might see and scare us in our our world, the most diabolical of all schemes was Satan seeking to rule and reign by putting Jesus on that cross. Not only was Jesus or Satan countered at every point, but God had a superior plan. A plan that he had devised an eternity past. And what Satan sought was actually woven into that plan and made to serve the ends of God's appointing. And if that was what God could do with the master plot of hell, if he could bring about the redemption of his people, the redemption of all things through the master plot of hell, then there can be no evil which he cannot in the end turn into hope, into the benefit of God's people. Jesus is the guiltless king. He's guiltless before all people, but most importantly for you and me, he's guiltless before God. That you and I, the guilty ones, the ones deserving a guilty conviction may go free. Jesus died unjustly. The just one died unjustly for you and me, the unjust to make us just. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, our savior, Jesus, who is the guiltless king, who has, who stood in our place, who took the penalty for our sin, releasing us. Lord God, but not also releasing us, but welcoming us into your family. Welcoming us into the loving embrace, the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus into your arms. Lord, we pray that as we reflect this, particularly this week, as we should reflect every day on the sacrifice of your Son, our Savior, Lord, may we live in the hope of the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus because of his death and his subsequent resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we come to the Lord's table. We come to the sign and seal of what Christ has done. we come to the sign and seal of the events of what we just looked at, what we remember this week. That every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember what Christ has done.